Most of us have heard how valuable it is to maintain a positive outlook. Most of us are probably convinced of the importance of that and of the fact that even when circumstances are very difficult, we can still stay positive and grateful. But surely there's a limit to that kind of thinking, right? Surely there's a time when circumstances are so bleak and hopeless that there's no use in even trying to stay optimistic, right? Like, for example, if you're in a concentration camp, if you're imprisoned by one of the most ruthless and fanatic military forces that this world has ever seen, would it still be possible then to stay positive, grateful, and productive? The Japanese came on the doorstep of our boarding school for the children of missionaries in, in Shandong province, and we were now the, the prisoners, really, of the great emperor of Japan, they said. That's Mrs. Mary Previty. She gave an interview to The Sun Also Rises on April 3rd, and as you heard there, she spent most of World War II as a prisoner of Imperial Japan in concentration camps in China. Marie Tallis and I interviewed Mrs. Previty about her experience in those camps, and the story is inspiring and just astounding. Mrs. Previty is now 84 years old and living in New Jersey, where she served as a representative of the 6th Legislative District from 1998 to 2006. But she was born in Kaifeng, China, to American parents named James and Alice Taylor. The family was in China to do missionary work, and Mary lived on the east coast of the country, in Shandong province, as she said. She and her sister Kathleen and her brothers Jamie and Johnny were attending what was called the Chifu School. The school had been set up to give American and British children living in China the chance to receive a Western-style education in English, even though they were thousands of miles from America and Britain. Their parents lived in another part of the country, so Mary and her siblings hardly ever saw them. But she says that before the war broke out, her life was peaceful. In her memoirs, she wrote, quote, The fabled land of my childhood was a country of ancient Buddhas, gentle temple bells, and simple peasants harnessed to their plows. But on December 7, 1941, when Mary was nine years old, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and everything very rapidly changed. In fact, the very next morning after that attack, Every door of the Chifu School building was suddenly manned by an armed Japanese soldier. They appeared the day after Pearl Harbor was attacked, and they began doing all these different things, going through the, ca- the campus and the buildings and putting seals with Japanese writing, this now belonged to the great emperor of Japan. For about a year, Mary and the other prisoners were allowed to stay in the Chifu School. But the school is on a valuable piece of seaside real estate, and the Japanese military soon decided they needed it for more important purposes. The Japanese then said they wanted to take our school, which was located right on the ocean. It was You just walked across the, the, the street and you were on the beach. And they wanted this beautiful school uh, to be uh, a, a Japanese naval base. And they let us stay there for about a year and then... They moved us to the first concentration camp. This concentration camp that they were relocated to was three miles across town. They were marched there in a straggling line of children and teachers. And once they arrived, it was extremely crowded. We were absolutely crammed in. I mean, we were crammed the worse there than we ever were the rest of the war. Mrs. Previty says that 
At this first concentration camp, there were four family-sized houses, and each was packed full of 60 to 70 people. They didn't even have one inch between their mattresses on the floors. They lived there for about 10 months, and then the Japanese shipped them by boat, train, and truck to another camp. At this second camp, they were combined with hundreds of other British and American civilians. Altogether, there were about 1,500 prisoners. And around 45 Japanese guards. The Japanese called the camp the Weishian Civilian Assembly Center. And here is how Mrs. Previty describes it. This was a walled campus that had been at one time a Presbyterian missionary uh, compound. And we, all the prisoners were rounded up from the northern part of China and brought in there. They were business people. They were a Christian, uh, a Protestant and Roman Catholic missionaries. There were the entertainers. There, there was everything in that camp. Men, women, and children, old, young. People were born there. People died there. There were uniformed guards patrolling regularly with, uh, we call them Alsatians, I think in America they're called German shepherds. And I was terrified of the Alsatians, the dogs. That just terrified me. Weixian was one of several concentration camps the Japanese set up in China while they were occupying the country. And the circumstances in these camps were grim and very difficult. There was not enough food for everyone. Many of the captives lost a great deal of weight. In the Weixian camp, one of the major components of their diet was animal feed. They also figured out certain weeds that they could find growing in the camp, such as the pigweed, and they would eat those for extra calories. At one point in her memoirs, Mrs. Previty is describing some of the terrible things that they had to eat, and she writes, quote, Only our hunger made it edible. End quote. Some of the prisoners also developed a system of bartering over the walls of the compound, a kind of black market that was really risky because of the kinds of punishments that would be administered if the Japanese caught someone doing it. But this barter system would let the prisoners occasionally get a little bit of extra food into the camp, including eggs. Mrs. Previty said that if they were able to smuggle some eggs in, they learned not to let any part of them go to waste. The doctors in the camp said, anybody that's bartered and got eggs, save the eggshells, do not throw them out, and then give the eggshells for the children. So the teachers got eggshells and washed them, and then baked them or, or cooked them, made them hard, really hard, and then ground them into powder and made us eat a spoonful of eggshells because the doctors said that was pure calcium for our teeth and for our bones. They were malnourished and overcrowded. In the dormitory rooms, only about 18 inches separated one bed from the next, so there was no privacy at all. And their days were filled with arduous work. The Weishian guards said that every able-bodied prisoner had to work each day, mopping floors, cooking, scrubbing clothes, swabbing the latrines, pumping water, carrying and burning trash. So it's clear that the circumstances were difficult in the Weishian camp. The circumstances were so bleak that most anyone in that situation would probably just be hopeless. Most anyone would probably just give in to the negativity. But that's not the girl guide way. Here in the United States, we have Girl Scouts, but most everywhere else in the world, they call them Girl Guides. 
And inside the Weixian concentration camp, there was a girl guide troop. And early in their captivity, actually when they were in the very first, uh, very crowded concentration camp, the troop leaders decided to operate the girl guide unit as if it were any other troop. They decided concentration camp or not, they were going to be orderly, cheerful, and polite, and they were going to earn some merit badges. We were to have nice manners like the princesses in Buckingham Palace. You could be sitting in, at a, on a wooden bench at a wooden table and eating out of a, well, you don't bring china and silverware into a concentration camp, so you would, you would be eating, eating out of, a, who knows, a, a soap dish, um, uh, an empty tin can, and, and you might be eating boiled animal grain. Uh, Gaoliang is what the Chinese would feed their animals, they're boiled into like a cereal, hot cereal, and the teachers would come up behind and they would say, Mary Taylor, uh, put, put your back up straight, do not talk with food in your mouth, and then it would be some kind of a message like, God is not honored by rudeness, and there are not two sets of manners, one set of manners for the Weixian concentration camp here and the princesses in Buckingham Palace in England. Twice a day, Mary and all of the other captives had to line up for roll call. Each of them was made to wear a cloth badge at all times pinned to their chest. This, this badge would symbolize that they were basically property of the Japanese emperor. And the Japanese soldiers would count them all off and then tally up the totals from the camp's various roll call districts. And on many of these days, the Japanese soldiers were very late to get there for the count, or they would be delayed while they were tallying up the figures. But Mary and the other girl guides didn't let that downtime go to waste. We often would wait and wait and wait and wait for the the officers to come to do the count. And what would we do? Well, we were practicing various and sundry things for our our uh, semaphore, um, Morse code. We were all these things we were learning. So Mary was able to use all that time standing in line, and she eventually earned a merit badge for getting the Morse code down. And she also earned a badge for developing her skills in folk singing. She's actually still very talented in that area to this day and was kind enough to give us a brief demonstration of those skills. I remember I earned a badge for folk singing way down upon the Swanee River. And that was one of the badges that I learned. She also earned a merit badge for learning how to build a fire. Somehow or other, we would have a little tin can, and we would figure out how to make a little grate inside the tin can and then practice lighting a fire inside the little tin can. So that, that was one of the things that we, we, had, we learned in the, the Girl Scouts. For the Girl Guides, it's pretty standard to earn merit badges in things like Morse code and folk singing and kindling a fire. But in the Weishian camp, the troop had a few activities that were off the beaten path. Activities that were not available to the Girl Guide troops back in London and Baltimore. And they made games out of, other people would say, horrible conditions. Like there were bed bugs, 
horrible bed bugs. In the summer, the bed bugs were horrendous. Well, they said, okay, we'll make it, we'll make it um, an adventure. Every Saturday will be the battle of the bed bugs. slept on steamer trunks because you didn't want to sleep on the floor because there were rats. So we, they, the rule was on Saturday in the summers, you got a knife. I don't know, not everybody had a knife or you use your thumbnail or fingernail if it was long enough and you went through every crack and cranny in the steamer trunk or if you had a pillow, the seams to kill any eggs, kill any bugs. Because if you didn't get them, they would get you, and they would get you at night. You wake up in the morning, and you would find a little trail of bite, bite, bite up your leg or your arm or your tummy, and, and that would be a game. At this point, we should also mention that in addition to the Girl Guides, the adults in the camp also established a Boy Scout troop for the boys and a Brownie troop for the girls who were too young to be Girl Guides. Mary actually started off as a brownie for the first year or so of her captivity before graduating up to the Girl Guides. That's right. So they had a group and a set of specific goals and activities for pretty much all of the boys and girls from the Chifu school. And bed bugs were not the only pests that these children had to wage war against. There were also some larger insects that posed a real threat. And again, the leaders of the Girl Guides and Brownies and Boy Scouts turned those extermination efforts into an enjoyable activity. Sanitation was horrible in this place. We didn't have nice toilets to flush. They were, they were like troughs. And, and uh, the Chinese, one, one Chinese man was allowed to come in every day to empty the septic tanks from these troughs, the cesspools. And the flies were a terrible problem in the camp. And the doctors, prisoners, prisoners who were doctors in the camp said, we need to have some, something to do to, to get rid of the flies. Well, they made it a game. They said, let's have a fly-killing competition, and whoever gets the most flies will get a prize. Well, bless my soul, my brother John, who's a surgeon in Ohio now, he won the prize. We, I don't know where they got it. Every child got a little, a little jar and a fly swat. I don't know where these fly swatters came from. But Johnny got, I don't know how many thousand flies, and he got a little can of, I think it was some kind of pate that had come in a Red Cross package. And he got the prize for catching, catching the flies. In the wintertime, the flies and other bugs were no longer much of a problem. But then the prisoners had to face off against another adversary. Everything was really, really cold in the wintertime. Well, the Japanese gave in every room there would be a pot-bellied uh, iron stove, and they wouldn't give us the coal. They gave us the coal dust. Well, we would have to go, I think it was once a week, we would carry the buckets to the Japanese quarters because that's the only place where the coal was located. And we would, we little girls, 13 of us, we would make a long line. It was girl bucket, girl bucket, girl bucket. They found this line system to be the most efficient way to move the coal dust from the Japanese quarters into each of the cramped prisoner dormitories. The full buckets were quite heavy and the process took quite a long time, but Mary and the others passed the time faster by singing. They would shovel the coal dust in and then on the way back, it was really heavy. Well, we would make a little, little, little uh, tune 
Many hands make light work. Many hands make light work. And we're carrying these, this long chain of buckets. And when we got back to the dormitory, we did what everyone in the camp did. You, you don't just burn cold dust. We made it into cold balls. So in the middle of the winter, when it was really horribly cold, you would mix the dust with dirt. And people, grown-ups, swapped recipes. How many scoops of dirt? How many scoops of cold dust? How many scoops of water? And then you would either use a tin can, or if you dared, you'd use your bare hands to make cold balls and sit them out in the sun till they dried, and then you would use that as coal in, in your stove. The Girl Guys leaders found a way to incentivize this too. I, I remember... Now, I am remembering for, for more than 70 years, can you believe this, more than 70 years, the pride that I felt when I and Marjorie Harrison got the pot-bellied stove red hot with the fire we started. We, did, we teamed up in two, two girl teams in lighting the fire in the, the dormitory room every day. And Marjorie Harrison and I, we got the, the, the superstar rating because we got the, the pot belly stove to turn red hot. Mrs. Previty is quick to point out that the real heroes of this story were the teachers from the Chifu school. These were the young women who led the Girl Guide troop and the other troops, and they provided all of that structure and opportunity for those children even though they were all in such trying circumstances. The children were able to entrust their anxieties to these women. The women really preserved their childhood. There was Miss Ailsa Carr and Miss Beatrice Stark and Miss Broomhall. These were women who were probably only 20 or 25 years old or so at the time. And even so, and even in such harrowing circumstances, they had to be mother, father and teacher to these young children who were separated from their parents for so many years. Keep in mind, our, none of us had our parents there. Our parents were far away. China was a very primitive country, and it was difficult to travel any distance. So we rarely saw our parents, and now the war came, and our parents were on the opposite side of China with warring armies in between, and no way for us to get together. I did not see our parents for five and a half years. So think of this. Our teachers became substitute parents, and they absolutely were not going to let us forget that God was taking care of us, and they were going to take care of us. And the teachers really went out of their way to keep the children from knowing how terrifying the world around them was. Even as Hong Kong, Singapore, and Malaya fell to the Japanese, even as Burma collapsed and the Philippines was invaded, even knowing what had happened in the Nanking Massacre, the teachers tried to shelter the children from knowing how dark the future looked. Even as the prisoners slowly starved, the teachers kept the children focused on their education and merit badges and making the best of what they had. Did we lose weight? Absolutely. I mean, were people undernourished? Absolutely. There were terrible conditions. But the teachers were protecting us with everything they can. And Girl Scouts and Brownies, absolutely. And school. School. Those were things that were absolutely going to continue and they were not going to give up. They would not give up. Long after she was liberated from Weixian, 
Mrs. Previty was able to track down some of these women to thank them for the astounding care that they'd given to the children. As an adult, Mrs. Previty was finally able to look back on the gravity of the situation. She was able to grasp just how huge the achievements of these Girl Guide leaders really were. I went to England in 1985. This, this was 40 years after the ending of the war and the liberation of the camp. And I visited some of these teachers and I said, I'm now a grown-up and I, I can imagine what you must have felt that you were now in charge of hundreds of children in this school marched away, not with their parents, and in this concentration camp. During this trip to England, Mrs. Previty asked Ailsa Carr about what it was like for her to be in that position and to be responsible for so many children who were separated from their parents, and all during a time when the Japanese were brutalising more and more of China and other parts of Asia. I said, Miss Carr, what were you feeling? She said, well, I knew they were digging the de- death pits, the death trenches outside the walls of the camp. She said, and I would pray to God every night that he would let me be one of the first when they lined us up by the death trenches and began to shoot, that he would let me be one of the first that would be shot to fall into the death death trench. I said, Miss Carr, I had no idea. I had no idea. But see, I was a child, and these teachers made it their business to protect us and to keep us from Uh, Maybe the big sisters and big brothers knew about things, but we younger kids were highly protected from knowing about all of these things. There aren't very many situations in life that would be as bleak and hopeless as a rat-infested, bedbug-ridden, tragically overpopulated, and malnourished concentration camp. And the sadness of life there should have overcome Mary Previty and the others of the Chifu school. But that's not what happened. Instead, the Girl Guides stayed positive and grateful and productive, and they survived. And they had the opportunity to go on to live happy lives. And accounts from the others who were in Weishian say that the Girl Guides' example exerted an undeniable positive influence on the adults in the camp, too. The Girl Guides and the other groups from the Chifu school improved the entire atmosphere there because they wouldn't stop singing and smiling, and they wouldn't give up. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG-FM. I would like to thank Mrs. Mary Previty for sharing her very inspiring story with us, and Marie Tallis for helping so much with this episode, and also Josh Sloan for his assistance with the recording. And we'll leave you today with one more snippet of wisdom from Mrs. Previty. You don't give up on things that are important, and our teachers certainly taught us that message. Who would have thought that you would continue Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts in a concentration camp? What a gift those teachers gave us.